I hope you enjoyed that. I'm still waiting on my check. I wrote that for him. Hopefully uh, that'll be coming in the mail. Propaganda, that's his, uh, I guess, his spoken word name. And uh, yeah, it's funny how people steal your material all the time. Uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to work that out with them soon enough. Um, you, you, you may be disappointed. Some of you might be thankful, but I'm not going to wrap a sermon for you today. Uh, I'm tempted. Maybe one day I'm going to work on that. Uh, but uh, but, 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 but think, about, think about what propaganda just gave us, the gospel. He says it's the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told. God, our sins, Paying everyone life. We could say the gospel is the greatest story anyone could ever understand that's often misunderstood. We could say the gospel is the greatest story ever heard that so few want to hear. The gospel. It's a word that simply means good news. It's the story that makes, helps us make sense of, of all other stories. This, the story, the overarching story that, that all of our other little stories should be defined by. It's the story of stories. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where we're going this morning, is that it is a scandalous story. This is a shocking story, the gospel. It is a powerful and yet polarizing story. And this is the way it's always been. This was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century, the gospel. So, so go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians We'll be in chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 18. If you want to use one of the Bibles we provided for you, we'll be on page 952. 952. And, and as you go there, let me just kind of set a little bit of the context for you. Paul is writing to the, to the church in Corinth, the people who believed in Christ in the city of Corinth. And the Corinthians were not what we would hold up as exemplary believers necessarily. Why? Well, they were an immoral crew for starters. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians, and man, you are going to find all kinds of ugly business going on in the church. Added to that, they were setting up factions and divisions within the church. They took their eyes off of Christ, and they took, put their eyes on people, and they said, hey, you know, some of these people, you know, we're going to follow Paul, and then others were going to follow Cephas or Peter. Some people were going to follow Apollos, and then even some people were getting around and saying, no, 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 we're following Christ. And Paul is quite upset about this. And so in chapter 1, he, he says, look, what are you talking about, Paul, Peter, Apollos? It's, it's Christ. Those were the internal problems, the problems on the inside that Paul had to deal with. But then he also had problems on the outside. The external factors that were difficult for Paul was this, was the Corinthian culture. The, the Greeks were seeking after wisdom, what we're going to find in the text. And part of what that meant for someone who announced the good news, preached, heralded the good news, was they were looking for someone with rhetorical flourish. Someone that could wow them with their words and appear powerful and wise, even if they were insincere. 
And Paul is, is not going to be down with that either. And so check verse 17. Before we get to 18, check verse 17, because here's the context. He's going to deal with the divisions and the rhetoricians all in one verse. He says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And so before we jump in to verse 18, here's the hope. Here's the goal of the prayer. What we should ask the Holy Spirit for this morning is that we would, each of us, every one of us, would receive the scandalous power of the cross of Christ. Receive it. Receive the scandalous power of the cross of Christ. Let's read verses 18 to 25 together. You can follow along as I read. We're going to see that the cross... The cross will either be a scandal to us or it will be the power of God. What does Paul say here? here? Here we go. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. God, help us to get this truth. Our life depends on it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first encouragement I want us to see is this, that the cross will either be a scandal to you or it will be the power of God to you. This is where Paul jumps in right immediately in verse 18. What does he say? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what does Paul mean when he's saying the word of the cross? Quite simply, Paul is referring to the message of the gospel, the good news. It's what he says in verse 23. He says, we preach Christ crucified. The cross of Christ is the epicenter of God's redemptive plan. We talk about this all the time at Redemption Hill. Creation, God made all things. Propaganda pointed out to us well. God made all things, made all things for his glory, including us who are made in the image of God. Everything was beautiful and good. Then enter our rebellion, our sin, the tragic effects of the fall, where now distortion and tragedy enter into our story. And what's so tragic about it is that now our sin has separated us from this holy God. But God, being rich in mercy and love, as the scriptures say, over and over and over again, full of grace, will not leave us in our sin, but he sends Jesus, his son, to 
be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die a cruel death, and win our redemption that we might have life. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. One day Jesus will come back and he will restore all things. He will make all things new. And if you want to kind of zoom in with me for a second, what's the, what's the crucifixion story? We read Mark, many of the details, but, but here's the deal, okay? Go back and read the Gospels. What you're going to find is this, is that especially you read, read, read the Gospel of Mark and Luke, it really points this out, is that very early in those Gospels, we have Jesus setting his face. It's a, it's a phrase that's meant he is determined, bound, bent on going to Jerusalem to die for the sin of the world. And so we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his father, sweating drops of blood. And he's saying, Father, be your will. Let this, let this cup pass from me. Yet not I will, but what you will. And what's the deal? What's the big deal about the cup? Well, the cup in the Old Testament referred to the cup of God's wrath. God is a holy God. He's a just God. He can't just sweep sin under the rug. And so Jesus understands this. This is what the sacrifice was all about. He knows that the cross is just moments away. So Jesus then is betrayed by one of his 12 disciples, arrested, tried unjustly. He stands before Pilate, mocked by soldiers, spit in his face, beaten, flogged, whipped with little uh, pieces of, of rock and that would just tear the, tear the flesh off his back asked to carry a, a cross outside of the gate of Jerusalem. He carried it until he couldn't carry it anymore, and then they grab a, a bystander in the crowd to help him get it all the way up the hill. And when he's pierced through his hands and feet, and he's breathing in agony, because that's how people were, were, were murdered on a cross. It was from asphyxiation. They, 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 they breathed until they couldn't breathe no more. And as he's breathing in agony, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he cries out again in agony. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see what? What's going on in the cross is this. We think about the cross and we look at the, the, the bleeding and, and, the, and the physical suffering of Christ. And sure, it was suffering, to be sure. But what made the cross so evil, so despicable, so difficult for Christ to endure is that there wasn't just physical suffering going on. There was spiritual suffering. He bore our sin on the cross and not just our sin, but he bore the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God. God's just punishment for our sin. He bore it on the cross to the point where just before he cries out, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit. What are the, the three words that he says? It is finished. What's finished, Jesus? Atonement. Full atonement was made on the cross. 
This is what theologians call. By the way, let me back up. Frederick uh, Krumacher says this about those words. It's so good. It is finished. He says, these are the greatest and most momentous words ever spoke upon the earth since the, the beginning of the world. It is finished. Theologians refer to the atonement as, as penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? It means that, that Christ bore the penalty that we deserve. We deserve to, 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 to die, but he was our sacrifice. We deserve to, to bear the punishment that we rightly earned and deserve from God, but Christ was the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sin. We deserve to, 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 to be continually separated from God. We were in bondage to our, our sin and to Satan. But the death of Christ reconciles us to God. He redeems us from all of the nasty effects from the fall. This is what 1 Peter 3.18 says. We need to understand this verse and know this verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel in one verse. Christ also suffered once for sins, that righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Anselm, in summarizing this, says this about the cross, that the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. That's a crash course on the atonement of Christ. This is what God was doing on the cross. This is why what happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, which is why we named our church Redemption Hill Church, this is, this is of the utmost importance. But here's, here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. What will you do with what happened there? How will you respond to this great act of sacrifice and redemption? Because Paul clearly tells us in verse 18, he says, look, there have always been two responses to this, reception or rejection. These are the two options. The cross perfectly divides humanity. I mean, isn't it amazing how two people can look at a movie or a work of art or listen to a speech and there can be two totally different responses. One person sees coherence and beauty, something that's, that's awe-inspiring, life-giving, and then the other person sees something that's confusing, even ugly, even appalling. And this is what happens with the cross of Christ. One person sees the cross and the meaning of the cross, what I just explained, and they are filled with joy and they walk away forever changed. And then another person says, so what? It's not for me. I don't buy that. And they walk away unmoved from the cross of Christ. This is how it's always been. So let's ask the question, if Paul is saying that that the, the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is folly, folly to those who are perishing. Why is that? And let's talk about that for a moment. Who are the perishing? It's not just those who will taste death, death one day. It, it, it's the, it refers to those who will suffer eternal loss, the consequences of our sin and separation from God. 
And this word folly is, is difficult for our, our English translations to, to keep up with, as some have pointed out. Martin Hingle, I believe he was a German theologian, he says that the word folly here would be better understood in the English as, as, as insanity or madness. It makes no sense. And for, for those of us who have been on the inside of, of Christianity for a while, it's sometimes hard for us to think about this and remember this. I mean, think about, put yourself in the, in the, in the mind of an unbeliever hearing this news. Virgin birth, sinless life, I'm a sinner, what? I mean, I know I'm going to be perfect, but I'm not that bad. Surely God doesn't care about a few wrongs that I happen to, you know, delve into occasionally, right? And then, and then God would die? That doesn't make sense. Resurrection? Surely we're beyond believing in miracles, right? I mean, those are, those are five, really quick, five things that most people just, what? So many people stumble over the cross. This is the word that Paul uses in verse 21 when he, when he says stumbling block. The Greek word is scandalon, where we get our word scandal. This message was scandalous. And why so? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Uh, number one, the cross was obviously a shocking instrument of salvation. The Jews had no concept of a crucified Messiah. Even to the point where Paul points this out in Galatians 3, he says, look, we, we Jews, we know the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Paul says, that's the point. He was our substitute. He bore the curse that we should have bore. But, but the, but the Greco-Roman world would have, would have been no more receptive to death by crucifixion. Listen to what Cicero wrote. He said this, Wretched is the loss of one's good name in the public courts. Wretched, too, a momentary fine exacted from one's property, and wretched is exile. But still, in each calamity, there is, some, there is retained some trace of liberty. Even if death is set before us, we may die in freedom. But the executioner, the veiling of heads, the very word cross, let them all be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. The cross was reserved for the lowest, the most despicable criminals of that day. And so it's little wonder that people stumbled over the cross of Christ. But then verse 22 gives us a couple more reasons why people continue to stumble over the cross. Check it out. What, is, what does Paul say? Very, very uh, succinctly summarizes the, the dilemma of our hearts and the idols of our hearts. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. D.A. Carson says about these verses that these two groups represent the fundamental idolatries of his age and of every age, including ours. So the cross was not only a shocking instrument of salvation, the cross undercuts our pride and puts God back on the throne. 
You say, where do you see that? Well, because Jews demand signs. What, is, what does that mean? He's, he's saying that they were demanding that God overcome their skepticism and disbelief by showing them more and more and more signs. And, and let's be clear, okay? In the Gospel of John, we have many signs that Jesus performed that were pointing to the fact that he is the Son of God. The cross and the resurrection, by the way, that is all the sign we need. And this is what Jesus said. He said, look, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of a well for three nights and three days, referring, uh, giving an analogy to, hey, I will be in a tomb three days. I will rise again. There's your sign. But what happens is this, is that we want God on our terms We want to inspect God's credentials. We're Donald Trump. He's the apprentice. And we want God to submit his resume. You know, God, fill out a profile on LinkedIn or Monster and and let us see really what you're made of. And you say, well, Tanner, I I don't get how that works out in my life. I mean, I must not be here. Well, experientially, let me, let me ask you if you've ever just thought or said something like this to God. God, I'll be, I'll be down with you if, if you don't get in the way of my plans. God, I'll be, I'll be in with you if you provide that job for me. God, I'll be on your team if you heal that family member if you will make all of the injustices and suffering in our world right, like right now. And we put God on trial. We want him to pass our tests. And all of a sudden now, who is calling the shots? Who is sitting on the throne? It's not God, it's us. And what the cross does, it frustrates our our desires and our demands because the cross puts God back on the throne. So many people stumble over the cross because of the, 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 the instrument that it was. The fact that it undercuts our pride and puts God back on the throne. And then thirdly, here's another reason. The cross undercuts our wisdom and places God front and center. This is what he says again in verse 22. He says, Greeks seek wisdom. Backing up to verse 20, what did he say? He said, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, the Greeks wanted to be able to explain everything with a a perfect system. They wanted to be able to reason their way to God. And faith is not without reason, okay? Let's be clear on that. But, but they wanted to, 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 to be able to, to come up with their own way, working out their own worldviews. They would have never come up with something as foolish as God saving people through the instrument of a cross. I mean, many times we want to remove all semblance of mystery out of the equation as if our finite minds would be able to understand all the ways and mysteries of God. I think this is important for us to hear. We who, who dwell in greater Boston, I mean, many of our, of our people here at Redemption Hill go to the most prestigious universities and colleges, not only in America, but in the world. 
I mean, we produce presidents in Boston, right? Presidents and the best in medicine, the biomedical field, technology, engineering, you name it, you fill in the blank. Man, we are among the intellectually elite. Well, at least some of you are. I mean, I, 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 I uh, you know, my education spanned like 24 years, okay? But I would have never got into many of these schools around here. But, but I consider myself a lifelong learner. I even can fit into our community group just a little bit. We have a lot of nerds in our community group. It's just like every time someone joins our community group, it's like nerd city. I don't, I don't get that. No offense, community group, but, uh, but uh, I can kind of fit in with that nerd piece a little bit, I think. Uh, come by it somewhat honestly, was in school forever. But, but, but listen to the danger here. Among the intellectually elite, there's, there's such a temptation for pride, not only in relation to others, where we have this sense of superiority. I'm smarter than you. I can work harder than you, faster than you. I can produce better results. But we also are tempted to carry this intellectual pride into the presence of God, where our arrogance in figuring it all out and not buying into the beautiful and mysterious and yet simple message of the cross will keep us from the very salvation that God has to offer us. All of our attempts, all of our system, all of our best efforts, our best made plans to find our way to God, to to earn our way to God, to pile up our good deeds, for them to measure up, as propaganda said, it's never going to be good enough. We want something to do with our salvation, but salvation belongs to God. We want the cross to be more sophisticated, but Paul is just saying, look, the message is very, very simple. And this is the the wisdom of God, by the way. And this is what God's plan was from the beginning. Look at verse 19. Paul, what is Paul doing here? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's saying this is the plan, even from the beginning. What What does it say? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Think about that. God has to destroy our wisdom. He has to frustrate our cleverness and expose it as not that clever at all for us to come to the place where we can embrace the cross. So let me ask you, have you embraced the cross of Christ? Is the cross a scandal to you, a stumbling block to you? Is it folly, foolishness, madness, insanity? Or... Does verse 24 and 25 describe you? But to those who are called, called to salvation, effectually called by God to follow him, what does it say? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I hope that you know Christ as the power and the wisdom of God because that is the other option. The cross will either be a scandal to you or it will be the power of God to you. But, but here's the second encouragement from our text this morning. And that is this. We need to get over the scandal of the cross to the scandalous power of the cross. Get over the scandal of the cross to the scandalous 
power of the cross. I mean, if the, cross is, is a, if the word of the cross is a, is a shocking message, then you might be equally to more shocked at the results which it produces in the lives of men. Let's, let's read verses 26 through 31. Here we go. He says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were uh, powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me make a few observations here from this, this, this last part of the passage. First and foremost, this is a beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone. The rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated. Black, white, it does not matter. It doesn't matter what your job is, what your family background is. The gospel's for everyone. And notice what Paul says. He even, you know, you might say, well, hey, you know, like if you're, if you're in, among the, social, the socially elite and the culturally elite and the intellectually elite, then, then you're out of luck, man. And, and like Jesus says to the rich man in Luke 18, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom, I, I think we could, could say that to the intellectually elite, to the socially elite, to the politically elite. Why? Because, man, we have it all together. We're self-sufficient. We have no needs. We don't need anything, much less God. But here's the amazing thing about grace and what God taught his disciples in Luke 18 is what he wants to teach us. Because what? The next chapter is, is Zacchaeus, the rich man, who enters the kingdom in spite of his riches because God is that great in grace and mercy. And what does the text say? It says, not many. Not many were of noble birth. Not many were wise, but some were. The church is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And this is what we're about as a church, Redemptional Church. We are a church for everyone, no matter the background no matter what it all looks like on the outside, we know that God is after everyone. He's after our souls. This is who we are as a church. This is what the gospel is about. And, and, and what, why does he do this? It's, it's so that no one would boast before God. God chooses just average. I mean, look at the disciples. Not super impressive. But God chooses the weak things of the world. The, 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 the not so wise people of the world to shame the strong, to shame the wise because it makes the point that the gospel is a gospel of grace. So if you want to come to God, no matter what category you may fit yourself into or others may fit you in, you have to have humility. You have to have a heart that would say, God, I don't have it all together, but you do. God, I'm not good enough, but you are enough. 
God, I have great needs, but in you is everything that I need, including this beautiful gift of grace and salvation. So this is how we have to come to Christ. This is how we have to to receive the gospel. This this passage here is is based on Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. What What does he say there? So take us home. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so this is who the gospel is for. It's for the humble of heart who would seek to understand and know God and that they would embrace all of who he is and receive this unbelievable gift that he offers to everyone. But then verses 31 and 30 and 31. So good. This is, this is the scandalous power of the cross, by the way. 30 and 31. He is the source. God is the source of our life in Christ. Salvation belongs to our God. God was looking for you before you ever came looking for him, and he may be looking for some of you this morning and making it really, really clear. This is how he works, by the way. He is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom God made what for us? Our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. How's that? Our wisdom, the best, you know, that we can come up with in our our human understanding and wisdom. And then you have the wisdom of God, which is not only the, the ends that he plans, but it's the means to get to those ends. So he plans to send his son to die on a cross, And we embrace this beautiful plan. Christ is our wisdom. He's all that we need. But even more than that, he is our righteousness. In other words, for those in Christ, for those who have repented of the way, the repentance is a biblical word, but it just means that that we turn from the way that we're living. We stop living for ourselves. We start living for God. For those who have repented of the way that they were living life before they met Christ and turn to place faith in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness. And now God looks at us and he sees Christ and he declares us righteous in him. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. In other words, he is making us now, for those in Christ, more and more and more like Jesus, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. And he is our redemption. We have been brought from death to life, from the power of the kingdom of darkness to the power of the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And we could go on and on and on. An enemy, now a friend. Of God. And even more, I mean, we could just keep going here. Like, this is not an exhaustive list. Christ is our confidence. He's our refuge. He's our strength. And we could just keep going and going and going and going. This is the scandalous power of the cross. Jesus is everything to us who believe. We never move away from the gospel. We never move away from the cross. The cross necessarily affects and influences our relationships, our marriages, our work ethic. And on and on and on and on and on we could go. So, as a church, and as an individual believer, we never want to move away from the cross. We want to say with Paul what he says in Galatians 6, verse 14. He says this, But far be it from me, 
to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We boast in the Lord. We boast in the cross of Christ because the cross is everything to us. So we're going to pray, and as we pray, I I want to invite you to really examine your heart because we would be silly to assume that every person in here has got over the scandal of the cross to the scandalous power of the cross. If you've never received Christ, if you've never turned from living for yourself, turned from your sin, embrace the gift that he offers, would you do that now? Just say, God, I'm in. I want you. I want to live my life for you and glorify you with my life. Let's pray and let's seek the face of God now. Father, thank you.